couple got us within a billion years of the Big Bang. This will push us back potentially to see the very first galaxies and stars that ever formed. Hi, I'm Kim. And I'm Murray. And this is the Great British Liftoff. Is it? It is. Episode three. Episode three? How have we got to episode three already? Oh, it's crazy. I've got a question for you. Really? Yeah. Okay, go on. Do you think we're alone in the universe? (laughs) All right. Hit me with a big one. Um, Do I think we're alone in the universe? So are you accepting the uh, the saucer, which I saw in the meadows last night, uh, from which a series of little grey people descended? Mm. Because that's evidence. Okay, good. What what kind of party were you having in the meadows last night? I was an excellent one. (laughs) Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you were busy. <laughs> okay, so we've got little grey men in the meadows. That's that's a yep. pretty good start. Yep. Anything further out there? I mean, I, I would love to think that there is life out there in the universe and not just on Earth. I know that from uh, from speaking to such world leading experts as we have in Edinburgh that the, the probability is vanishingly small, but also we have an improbably large universe. So I would like to think that somewhere out there. In the universe, there is uh, if there is life. So I'm going to say yes. Okay. There is life out there, and no, we're not alone. Although I don't know how friendly we'd be able to get with like a sort of unicellular organism mm. uh, somewhere off on another watery world. But um, I think there's life somewhere. And you think it's something simple, not intelligent life, just maybe an amoeba floating around. Well, I don't know how intelligent we are, really, <laughs> um, as we as we trash our planet. But um, yeah, it's, it's probably more likely that there's something uh, simple than something which is far more uh, complicated. Okay. But that's little old me uh, who concerns himself with Earth observation and trying to support nature-based solutions down here on planet Earth. Okay. I will not advertise myself as an expert in things extraterrestrial. We have luminaries on this show who will answer such questions with a lot lot more credibility than I. What about what about yourself, Kim? Do you think we're alone? I actually do think we're alone. And far from that really? Yeah, but far from okay. that being an arrogant assumption like we are the only life, I actually think that makes you more appreciative of what we do have on earth yeah I, I think you you always point this out that i'm very very focused on on life on earth that was really the foundation of the company space intelligence it's the foundation of what we do at the university of edinburgh a lot of the time in in geosciences it's supporting sustainability mm-hmm. uh, and i think that's fundamentally important that said you know it's not mutually exclusive with exploring the universe and looking for life elsewhere so that's why I'm, I'm so excited by this episode. I know. Well, I mean, it was great for me to actually ask people who are a bit more clever than you whether or not there might be life out there because they do spend... Well, that must have been easy. <laughs> they do spend their lives looking... In fact, they've spent a good chunk of their lives. They've spent 27 years of their lives on this particular project, which you wouldn't yeah. think possible given how young they are. But um, we have Professor Gillian Wright and Professor Jim Dunlop on today, and they are both astronomers, not astrologers. I'm glad I didn't make that mistake because I believe that's a swear word in the astronomy centre. Didn't ask their yes, star sign. I think, you, and you, you would have been immediately fired. I think from the podcast. I think, I think that would have been a rapid end to the interview. Yeah, no, they've been working on the James Webb Space Telescope, which I was sort of dimly aware of. I think you probably know a bit more about it than I was. Everyone's heard of the Hubble. Well, most people have. Even my husband had heard of the Hubble Telescope, which was yeah. 
um, interesting for someone who's not scientific. But the James Webb telescope's the next generation. And just the power of this telescope blew my mind. It really is astonishing. It's so exciting to think about these next generation technologies, which are going to be launched up into space. But even more exciting, as people with a dog in the fight for Edinburgh and and for for Scotland and the UK, that this stuff is going on right here at home. So, again... What a privilege to have such experts and luminaries coming on this show. Well, that's what I loved because when I was looking at the the sort of process of designing this telescope, which incidentally is going to go a million miles out into space and then look so far out into the galaxies that apparently it's going to come within a billion years of the Big Bang. Can't even really conceive of that, to be honest. But it's a joint NASA, ESA and Canadian Space Agency project. So the fact that Edinburgh and experts based here in the UK are such a big part of that is just so exciting. We should really make a big deal about that, shouldn't we? Yeah, we should make a podcast or something. (laughs) We should. (laughs) So they're going to look out and potentially answer this question that Murray and I started podcast with is whether there is life out there and they feel like they might see something because 70% of the images from this new telescope will be brand new to humankind. Just think about that for a minute. Does your brain wrap itself around these kinds of facts? It tries, you know, the, the, the little thing which is up there in, in my wee head. Um, but it's, just, it's astonishing, really, isn't it, that, that we are still in this age of discovery. Yeah. That's, that's the, I think, fundamentally, that is what's so exciting about this topic. Absolutely. And it was, as I said, 27 years in development. So I had to ask Professor Wright, how did the journey start? I think the ideas first started in in the mid-90s. I personally have been involved since about 1997, 98, when we first started looking at European studies for how Europe might contribute to the telescope in an explicit way. So yes, it it takes a long time to build something this challenging and complicated and launch it into space. It's just amazing. So um, Professor Dunlop, could you tell us about what the point of the James Webb Telescope is? Yeah, I was just thinking back to, Julian, can you remember when in in the early days it was called the Next Generation Space Space Telescope? So if if this is a podcast can achieve anything, it will explain acronyms, pointless or otherwise. So <laughs> NGST, we, we hosted a meeting on NGST towards the end of the 1990s, I'm pretty sure it was. Maybe that original description, Next Generation Space Telescope, is, is a more informative one than the current name, the James Webb Space Telescope, which is named after a, a key person at NASA, who largely responsible for it happening. So at the time, the Hubble Space Telescope was flying and working and still is, remarkably, all these years later. But people wanted to do something that was bigger and better. And I guess the main two points are it's a lot bigger. It's about three times the diameter, so it it can capture about 10 times the light. And it can see much further into the infrared to longer wavelengths of light, which opens up a whole area of what people might call origins astronomy, because you can see highly redshifted galaxies from the early universe, and you can see dust and shrouded young stars in our, in our galaxy, and you can see planets and things. So so size, able to see, see to the infrared, and that required it to be cooled, which is the reason it's going to be a million miles from Earth rather than whizzing around nearby the Earth like the Hubble Space Telescope, because we need to get away from the heat of the Earth. How cold has it got to be? 40 Kelvin. What's a Kelvin? <laughs> so that, that's minus 230. Is, so this, this is much colder than anything you've ever met. <laughs> 
it's just incredible that we can get something a million miles from Earth and then use it. So what are you hoping to use it for? It's not the first telescope to go to this point in space a million miles away. There's a couple of other telescopes. One, again, Gillian was involved in Herschel, which uh, conducted a mission again in the infrared. And the, the Planck telescope that people may have heard about that has mapped the microwave background is also out there in the same path. So we know how to get things there. But they've got to work because we don't know how to send an astronaut there to fix it. <laughs> if it's broken, which is what happened with the Hubble Space Telescope, of course. So what we're trying to do, it's, it's really a big um, survey, or a deep survey of patches of sky with the two main images on board. So one is called NERCAM, Near Infrared Camera. So that does imaging at the wavelengths of a few microns immediately red words, if you like, of what Hubble could do. Uh, and the other is called Miri, of which Jillian will talk about presumably in a little bit more because she's the co-PI of the mid-infrared instrument, uh, MI for mid-infrared. And together, these, these uh, two cameras, the idea is to image in 10 different wave bands, so 10 different colors. And with that kind of information and the size of the new telescope, we should be able to detect galaxies earlier in the universe than ever before, but also characterize their properties from the colors, work out how old they are. Sounds a bit bizarre, but from this information, we can work out what the metal or chemical content of these early galaxies is. And with the exquisite imaging, we'll be able to measure the sizes. So it'll, it'll advance a lot of our understanding of very early galaxy evolution beyond what we could do with Hubble. And Hubble, Hubble got us within a billion years of the Big Bang. This will push us back potentially to see the very first galaxies and stars that ever formed after gravity got a grip of the chaos after the Big Bang. Uh, and we argued hard that it should be in cycle one. That JWST is expected to have at least five sort of annual cycles of observing and one reason for doing it in cycle one is that there'll be about 70 percent of the objects we expect to uncover will never have been seen before so there'll be new targets to follow up with some of the other instruments on JWST particularly with spectroscopy in future cycles so it's a science experiment for early galaxy evolution in its own right, and it's like a massive finder for new targets for people to pursue in later years. It's incredible to think that we are getting closer and closer to the beginning of the universe. I mean, that must excite you so much personally, never mind professionally. Well, we're kind of running out of time. I mean, at some, <laughs> some, at some point, there will, as we look back in time, there will be no galaxies because the early universe was relatively structureless. So we're already, if, if you think of the universe being about 14 and a half billion years old, this will push us into the first half billion years. Uh, and there was a nickname for the James Webb Space Telescope that it was, it has been nicknamed by some people the first light machine. First light, but I mean, looking for the first stars and galaxies. So in a sense, our program is one of the things that it was always meant to do. So I'm very pleased it's been committed so many hours in the first cycle. Yeah, I can't wait to see these first images. And Gillian, you're in charge of the mid-infrared instrument. I mean, tell me what it does, first of all. It looks at the, at the longest wavelengths that JWST can see. And the reason it's designed to do that is so that we can look, well, first of all, as Jim says, some of these very high redshift galaxies in, in the early universe might be very, very red, much redder than we've seen before but also it's very good for looking at dust and dust chemistry and understanding more about how stars and planets form in our, in our galactic neighbourhood. It's really difficult to build a mid-infrared instrument, so it's a big challenge. 
and that's there's only one of them on JWST. So Jim was mentioning imaging and spectroscopy, and in the near infrared, that's done with diff different instruments that are specialised in each of those techniques. Whereas with Mary, we've built one instrument that can do both imaging and spectroscopy. And it's also got what we call a coronagraph, which can block out the light from stars. And the reason we want to do that is so that we can look in the very near neighbourhood of the star and take images of planets. So hopefully one of the other things we'll be doing, as well as looking at some of the very first galaxies to form, will be um, looking directly at images of planets orbiting other stars and understanding more about how they're made, what the chemistry in their atmosphere is, what's happening around the stars. And I think this whole discovering things we haven't seen before is going to be really exciting. It is very exciting. But I have to ask, what is that going to tell us about us? I think if you understand something about planets that are orbiting other stars, it's a different way of understanding more about the models that model the atmosphere of our planet that we use to understand our planet. We're understanding more about our place in the universe, aren't we? If we understand, if we can look that far back to where the Big Bang happened or the first galaxies formed. It's going to inspire so many people, isn't it? Just the fact that human intelligence has taken us this far. I mean, do you think it's going to inspire more people to study science? I hope so. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a lot of surveys that show that people who go into all different kinds of scientific endeavours, and by that you could include medicine and things that maybe it's easier to understand impact in day-to-day -day life. We're inspired early on by, by getting involved in astronomy, which in some ways is the most accessible, the most pictorial, if you like, and the most DIY science that kids can get involved in. Here in Scotland, I mean, there's a, been a partnership uh, between the SAFC ATC that Gillian runs and the University's Institute for Astronomy share uh, a commitment to visitor centre work at the observatory which has also played a, a, a major role in establishing these dark sky centres and for Scotland, of course, is very good for, maybe not in the middle of Edinburgh or Glasgow, but in lots of places, the sky is remarkably dark and you can um, inspire groups of kids from schools or other organisations to, uh, to see the night sky. And that's, if you like, a first contact with things that you can see and be excited about, you know, all the usual things about astronomy, the first time that people were able to actually calculate things that happened, do predictions that were borne out by experiments. So a little taste of that in our chaotic world is still a worthwhile thing, I think. And I'm really interested in, the, in Scotland and the UK's role in this, because the telescope itself is obviously a joint endeavour between NASA, ESA, and also the Canadian Space Programme. And it's cost $10 billion, which is also just staggering. But look how important Edinburgh is as part of it, because I know a lot of the instrumentation has been developed in Edinburgh, obviously what you're working on, Gillian, and other instruments as well. Do you feel like this is a real chance for us to lead globally? I think we, we are leading globally. That's how we ended up developing the MIRI instrument, or at least are part of it. I should say none of these things are done by one institute or one place. They're all massive international collaborations working with other people. So there was something... 20-something institutes involved in developing the Mary instrument. Yes, we led it from Edinburgh, but they all contributed as well. Parts of it were built all around Europe and the USA and then assembled together to make the telescope. So, so it is a 
it is global leadership. It's working with people all around the world to build something amazing. That will hopefully benefit everyone around the world with the information that we we'll get as, from. As well, yes, the telescope mm. will be open to absolutely everybody to use. It's interesting to think that astronomy has now developed to the point where basically everyone in the world has to join to build one. <laughs> yes. that's, that's not yeah. the history. You know, it used to be, uh, you know, California com competing with Hawaii, competing with Chile, Europe competing with America, but um, JWST is a single kind of worldwide effort. And actually, I think I'm right, Gillian, in saying that the European, the ESA contribution is significantly bigger for the James Webb Space Telescope than it was for the Hubble Space Telescope. So, you know, I think Hubble was viewed very much as a NASA US-led experiment with people making minor contributions. James Webb is, is, is much more of a, a partnership. Yeah, and I, I, so I think what's different to Hubble is that Europe's really contributed things that are at the heart of how the mission does the science and, and the instruments and European technologies, as well as doing our share of what you might call the more functional things like, like the launch vehicle and so on. Um, so I think we've made a really big contribution from Europe to the mission. And that brings with it science and how the science, thinking through how the science will be done. And it's probably worth commenting that this was easy is the wrong, the wrong word, but a bit of an easy win for Edinburgh because Edinburgh, both the university side and the, the research council side, have a long tradition in infrared astronomy, originally from the ground. So the first infrared astronomical camera was built at Edinburgh, IRCAM, it was called in the first place. People like myself and other astronomers at university were the first people to do deep near-infrared surveys from the ground. So all the expertise, both technical and scientific, was already at the Royal Observatory mm -hmm. Edinburgh for an infrared mission. And that's another reason uh, we're playing probably a more prominent role in the James Webb than we did in the Hubble Space Telescope, which was very much a, I mean, latterly it got a near-infrared camera, but primarily Hubble was a kind of okay, out in space, but an orthodox optical telescope with some UV capability and some infrared capability. But most of the images you see in the posters from Hubble are optical images. And Edinburgh's expertise has long been in, in infrared. And that's what you need to see further and further, I guess. Things get red for two reasons. They either get red because they're flying away for us, this phrase redshifted, so that the, the light has literally been stretched out into the infrared red bands, or as Gillian was discussing, they get red because they're obscured by dust, which reddens things for an entirely different reason but for a technical point of view it's all red stuff that we couldn't see before <laughs> so, so if you're red and you're faint james webb space telescope <laughs> is the thing to see you you make it sound so straightforward it's just red in, stuff. in essence that's what it is we're trying to see red faint stuff and find out and find out more about it yes for me this is just so exciting i'm not a scientist i don't understand all the incredible technology and science that's gone into it but just almost the philosophy of it and what it's going to allow us as a human race to develop into is what excites me the most is that something that you guys think about in your jobs as well yeah well, definitely that's why i'm an astronomer <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think in astronomy, the technical and the admin and the people management challenges, of which Gillian will, I'm sure, agree there are many, are probably the same as working in any 
other big organization mm -hmm. but at the heart of it the reason you got into it was a sense of discovery and we're kind of lucky in that we work in a business where every year we take in new kids from school or, or into postgraduate people from their first degrees so if we ever are in danger of forgetting why people are doing it we get that refreshed by young talent who are still not bogged down by doing appraisals or looking at financial spreadsheets so we get this kind of refresher course every year as we take in new undergraduates into the physics degrees and how wonderful for all these students to help you work on this telescope have they had projects and, and roles i assume involved yeah so many of them have, have gone on to to do other things in space or other things in the world but there's been been working on the instrument for 20 years so that's seven generations of students really that have contributed worked on different aspects of it not not just students of physics and astronomy but engineers and graduate engineers young engineers learning their engineering skills by working alongside a more senior engineer who's leading the design but they've been doing a lot of the detailed engineering so there's a huge engineering skills teaching people how to design and build things as well as, as Jim said, teaching people how to be scientists, how to analyze things, how to test things, how to under understand things. So yeah, it, it is a built up a new generation of scientists and engineers from working on this mission. It's a long time, over 20 years working on it, and we're hopefully launching at the end of this year. Is that still on track? Yes, that's still pretty much on track. Um, I think we're getting very close now, so that's really exciting as well. So I've got a team of people that are preparing to help commission the instruments and they're heavily into rehearsing now what's going to happen when we when we launch and practicing so that everything goes smoothly when it does happen yes please don't break it on route to the launch pads that would just be a disaster <laughs> well, there's, so, there's, there's both on route to the launch pad and there's on route to to this take about six months of wandering across space gradually unwrapping and communicating and and so there's getting off the ground will be one thing but this is by some margin the most complicated observatory that's ever been sent into space certainly into deep space and so there's lots to go wrong but there's also lots to go right. <laughs> Will it be launched from, from an equatorial launch pad or how are you launching it? French Guyana, right? It's yeah. launched from ESA's site, the European Space Agency's site in French Guyana. And I have to ask, how do we communicate with something that's a million miles from Earth? What, what technology do you use? Slowly. <laughs> Slowly, yes. How, what's the lag? How long does it take for the information to come back to us? Oh, now you're asking. I have to quickly think about that. Gillian will know the answer and I'll calculate it for you. No, I don't know the answer, actually. I don't think the lag is hugely significant. So the telescope communicates to something called the deep space network and then that communicates to the ground. But the bandwidth is very limited. Now, according to my iPhone calculator, it takes about five seconds for light to travel yeah. a million miles. So that's your lag. Five seconds? Yes. My goodness, I thought you'd have to wait weeks. Five seconds? No. no, I mean, from, <laughs> no. From the light from the sun, which is 93 million miles away, takes eight minutes. So if you sit down and divide eight minutes by 93 you'll get you'll get five seconds if i can type properly space is big but light is fast light but is then fast. you know to put things to put things into perspective that the galaxies we'll be looking the light will have taken 14 billion years to get to us wow so that, gives you, that gives you some sense of scale if you can get your head around it I can't. I've tried. This whole series I'm trying to get my head around this science. It just <laughs> blows my mind. But I love that. So 
what could we see that might change everything? Well, in our case, one of the things that will be a, a challenge, as I say, if we keep seeing galaxies, you know, if the telescope, ironically, if the telescope doesn't see the first galaxy, because it can see back to about redshift 20 or 30, so it can see back to really very close to the Big Bang. If we keep seeing stars and galaxies, then people will probably be, it'll be a challenge to the theories to make the galaxies and stars early enough. Alternatively, we might for the first time see what people might call unenriched galaxies. So in the Big Bang, the only elements that were made were hydrogen and helium, essentially because the Big Bang was like some kind of stir fry that only lasted about 15 minutes. And I mean, literally 15 minutes of uh, fusion. And in 15 minutes, there's simply not time to fuse the hydrogen to the helium, to the lithium, to the carbon, to the oxygen and nitrogen, the stuff that you and me are made of. And so you're relying on the first stars in the first galaxies to be the first places that, that basically manufactured the elements of life. And these things are hard to see because we think the first stars being made out of hydrogen and helium would be really giant stars, just the way the gas cools if you don't have any carbon and oxygen and stuff. And so although they might have quickly produced a lot of the elements for life, they would then go bang very quickly in very rapid supernova. And so these first generation of stars, you know, a lot of things in astronomy, you can look at them early, early a long time ago, and you can look at them around us today and see the relics. But these first stars probably just went kaboom and were gone. So nobody's ever found a, a, what astronomers call a metal-free star, by which we mean a, a star devoid of heavier elements in our own Milky Way. There are some metal-poor ones, but there's no metal-free ones. So a very exciting thing would be if our survey could see some galaxies actually at the point of producing these first metals. And, and the signature for us of that would be there's a certain blueness and colour that you can only get if the galaxy is made of stars that don't have things like carbon and oxygen in the atmospheres of the stars. So seeing in the story of life, why would it matter for us seeing the epoch at which the first elements heavier than hydrogen and helium were made would be a big moment in science, I think it's fair to say. This really is one of the, the big exciting things that we've built the mission to try to try and find out. You can't answer this that those questions with Hubble or, or the big ground-based telescopes. The other area where I think the mission will change everything is in our understanding of planets that are not in our solar system because we'll have the ability to do detailed chemistry of what's happening in, in their atmospheres that's not really been there. In the, there's been missions that have discovered now thousands of these exoplanets, planets orbiting other stars, but what they haven't had the capability to do is the really detailed chemical studies of, of, of what their makeup is. And I think that's going to be very exciting as well. No aliens, though. We're, and not, potential, we're not likely to and, find life, are we? Well, some of the planets that Gillian's that, um, talking about finding, uh, well, in the same sense that this higher edge of galaxy survey we're doing will provide targets for people to study in more detail the earliest galaxies in the universe. Future spectroscopic studies of some of the planets around other stars there is talk about finding signatures, biosignatures, ozone being the classic that people often talk about. Biosignatures in the atmospheres of some exoplanets uh, might be the sign, not necessarily of dinosaurs or something, but, but of microbes uh, being the only things that can enrich the atmosphere in that way. Uh, and so it's certainly another big step towards finding other worlds that we can explore to see if life is unique to us, which is a question that even philosophers can get interested in, I think. Yeah, it's not so much finding life as I think we'll understand much more about 
what we are seeing and whether it might be signatures of life at some time and when it when you go back to those systems and, and look at them in more detail with permissions that will come after JWST. But you know, things like methane, carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, there's a lot of things we can look for in the atmospheres of these planets that really help us to understand. That kind of jokey comment about dinosaurs has, has made me wonder. I mean, we are effectively time traveling because we're we're traveling the speed of faster than the speed of yeah, light. We're looking at like, the earliest galaxies. It could be, is it possible to find something that's at an earlier stage of development from our time? I mean, I can't even phrase this question because my head's getting confused. I mean, you can you can do the fossil record of our galaxy, our, galaxy, our Milky Way galaxy. So, Astronomy is unusual in that you can do the, the paleontology, if you like. You can study the ages of stars in our galaxy and you can, you can try to track its history. And, and we've got people at Edinburgh who do a lot of that, that so-called local cosmology, because you can try to unpack the history from the local galaxy. But then we're lucky, you know, uniquely lucky in astronomy, that you can then also try and check whether that's consistent or different than the actual history. Now, of course... There's a logical leap there because when I talk about the actual history, I'm talking about not our galaxy, but analogous galaxies. Uh, and so there's a philosophical leap that what happened way over there back then is a bit like what happened here back then. It's not like we've got the Milky Way at different times, but we have analogous galaxies at different times in the kind of time slicing of the universe. Uh, and one of the remarkable things about modern astronomy and cosmology is that, you know, if you look at the oldest stars, around our galaxy, they are very similar in age to what we infer to be the age of the universe through this time travel technique. And so you piece things together in these two ways and, and try and cross-check that you can get a consistent history between the fossil record and this inferred record by analogous but galaxies overall of cosmic time, which we're lucky enough to get because the universe is, let's face it, remarkably transparent. If we, if we lived in one of these dusty places that Gillian's talking about looking at, none of this <laughs> would we wouldn't be able to do any of this, no. <laughs> well, we'd probably never have thought it because there wouldn't be many stars in the night sky. Well, it's incredible. You look at the vastness of space, which most of us can't even conceive of, and you look at the amazing fluke of Earth and all the different elements that have come together, and now we've we've evolved so far that we're now looking at how we even evolved. I mean, it's just incredible. I mean, are we likely to find anything similar in the, in the universe at any stage in in our development, do you think? Yeah, I'm kind of fairly sanguine about this because in some ways, in some ways it doesn't really matter. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah, I, think, I think there's a lot of people would say it's probably, there's probably two different extremes. Either life is fairly common, and I think probably the majority of philosophers of science, scientists and astronomers would think it would be bizarre in such a big universe if we were the only place that life had, had ever developed. But it is actually possible we are the only place that life had ever developed because the jump from chemistry to biology is so unlikely that you need a universe this big for it to happen once in the same sense that winning the lottery is so unlikely you've got to sell an awful lot of tickets. Right. Whichever of these two things are, are true, we're still going to learn stuff. Because even if we were the only place that life evolved, you still need to understand how chemistry and early formation of the elements that I was talking about, and then more of the molecules that Gillian was talking about, these are still precursors to get to us, whether we are unique or not. So I think it's kind of interesting either way. What do you think, Gillian? Are we alone in the universe? I don't know. I think it's interesting either way. And I think what's really exciting is, is that we're developing the tools and ways of exploring the universe that help us to find answers to that 
ancient, ancient question. And you helped build some of them. So thank you. Professor Gillian Wright and Professor Jim Dunlop. Professor Wright is the director of the UK Astronomy Technology Centre here in Edinburgh and Professor Jim Dunlop is the professor of extragalactic astronomy and the head of school. So two real experts, a privilege to speak to them and have them on the podcast. And I was wondering how we would follow that, but I think we've managed to follow it quite well, haven't we? What have we got on next week, Murray? Next week, we will be moving on to Sir Martin Sweeting, who is, is somebody who's been absolutely fundamental, instrumental in the development of the UK uh, space industry. So somebody actually followed that process of moving from academia into innovation and creating one of the key companies in the UK satellite scene, Surrey Satellite. So what a pleasure to, to bring him onto the show and also to just to hear his enthusiasm and passion for a subject which has dominated his life. Love speaking to him and what a wonderful person. He was great fun and he was so excited to chat to two people who were so into space. I think that must be so great when it's your your specialist subject and then two people come along and say, tell us about your specialist subject. He obviously enjoyed <laughs> the opportunity to tell us the story of how he invented small satellites because that's basically what he did. Exactly. And that's really becoming a dominant theme for the UK and uh, for broadly what's called agile space more generally, this idea that we can specify a mission, launch it, operate it all within the courses of 18 months. And small satellites are, are really the driver of that miniaturization of technology. And he's just fresh from the Life Scientific on Radio 4. So that's also a bit of a coup to have someone of that level on our podcast. Really excited. We'll share that with you next week. But for today, just want to thank our two sponsors, the Data Driven Innovation Programme here in Edinburgh and the Science and Technology Facilities Council, of which Professor Wright is a part. So great to have them on board supporting us. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening.